Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself. Learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey friends, it's Rena Olson. Welcome to the Relevate Podcast. As people in recovery are stepping out of the shadows, publicly sharing our stories like this mm-hmm. to let people know that recovery is really about hope yes. and that just like any health condition, we have a right to treatment. That is my friend, Katherine Rossborough. Katherine is here to share her story along with her husband, Bill Whitney of addiction, recovery, and second chances. You'll also learn more about the nonprofit Catherine founded that Bill now leads called The Connection, an addiction recovery support center in Cumming, Georgia. The idea of peer-to-peer recovery support services is gaining momentum in the U.S., and The Connection is helping lead the way. I know you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Catherine and Bill, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. What a delight it is to be here face to face, Mm -hmm. capturing your story because you two are such a beacon of hope for people who struggle. And I love the fact that you're not just keeping that inside, you are using your story to help other people. So that's, that's where it gets really good in life. And I'm sure neither of you probably could have imagined this trajectory for your life. So let's just start in and I'd love to know a little bit more. I mean, we're friends. We're all friends here, but I haven't really heard the story. So let's start with just a little background about you, Catherine, ladies first. Would well, you thank like you. to start? I'll start at the beginning and try and be brief. I am a Georgia native and my father was a Vietnam veteran. There, after he retired from the Navy, he was a, a career Navy Person, things at my house, my household really went downhill quickly. Um, so I grew up in, um, he had PTSD, he had um, untreated uh, bipolar and severe alcoholism. So, mm-hmm. you know, addiction is something that's been in my family for many generations. That's not unique to me, it's true with a lot of families, but it intensified after the war. And there was a lot of violence in my home and a lot of poverty. So I spent many years in a trailer um, in the southern part of the state and outside of Savannah. So that was, uh, those were my beginnings. I actually started uh, drinking alcohol, which is a little ironic giving everything that I had witnessed in my household. But that was one of the ways that I coped and not knowing, you know, the risk factors involved. It's mm-hmm. kind of that would not happen to me, I would be smarter. But I started at an early age to just deal with some of that anxiety and um, depression. This is all hindsight, you right. know. Sure. 
I didn't set out to mm -hmm. say I'm going to treat uh, my own mental health challenges with drugs and alcohol, but that's that's how I got started, and it escalated quickly. Um, I drank. I was really high functioning in my drinking for many for decades for decades really all through high school. That was school was kind of my escape. Mm -hmm. um, I was a cheerleader and an honor student, and um, I hid the fact really well that I was hurting. So uh, we settled in a small little town outside of Augusta. Did you know that you had a problem? I knew I had a problem in that when I did drink, I tended to drink more than other people. Mm -hmm. But the people that I was around um, were also drinking, partying a lot, and then of course college, it became the norm. So it didn't really catch up with me until after college when I had already gotten married and, and been divorced when I graduated college. And all the people around me that I'd been partying with kind of quit and started settling down and I was still mm -hmm. uh, partying past the norm of, you know, of everybody else. So I struggled for decades. Where my addiction affected me most was in relationships. So multiple divorces, which had an impact on my children. Mm -hmm. And I finally, in 2013, just made a decision because of health reasons, because I had been drinking for so long that I was gonna get, you know, go to the hospital and I went for medical treatment and stayed in rehab for a little while and started to get better. Mm -hmm. So the story definitely has a happy ending, uh, but there was a lot uh, in my childhood, and within my family, my brother, my sister, it was it was a disease that definitely impacted our family. And though we lost our two parents to addiction, we that. are all in recovery. So now we're a family in recovery. Mm, so that's, that's the good cool. news. Yeah, that's the good news. Go with me. Yes. My story is a little bit of a contrast to cats. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in Connecticut to a very, very well-to-do family. Um, we had, from on the outside, what looks like all the comforts life could enjoy. My parents loved me. Um, and, you know, as a little kid, things were, things were pretty good. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say they were idyllic. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was some, uh, some upset in the family. My parents split up for about a year pretty impressionable time to me and um, a couple of things happened unfortunate things happened and being at a vulnerable age I didn't understand you know how why my dad was gone I then thought I chased him away and I was uh, uh, I, I had some very very difficult things happen to me and I didn't have a way to process them mm -hmm. And for lack of a better explanation, I just decided that there was something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, like and you were how old when this was going on? I was in fifth grade. Um, like ten. Yeah, I think between the ages of ten and eleven, I, I had, I just, I had a couple of really important pivotal times mm -hmm. that in in my life um, that uh, were turning points for me. And with mm -hmm. with no one to no one to tell me that, you know, hey, this isn't your fault, or, mm -hmm. you, you know, I, I just, mm -hmm. I became very, very insecure. Uh, and, of course, I 
mask that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was I was I realize now looking back at it that that was the beginning of a period of time where I was constantly, like 24 hours a day, constantly worried about how I looked or how I how I appeared to the outside world. Mm -hmm. um, I was, you know, I felt unlovable. I felt like there was something wrong with me. I felt like I had to hide from everybody. So I put a lot of masks on really early mm -hmm. and had to juggle the masks. And, and I didn't realize it at the time. I was an okay student. But when these, after these things happened, I became far more concerned with being accepted uh, than anything else. And so when I got into high school and first smoked marijuana, I didn't realize at the time, of course, but I could be, I, I could be free from any kind of worry at all. And so to make a long story short, I drank and used whatever you had until I was 47. Uh, and through that time, I managed to, to fake it, you know, to change masks and, and to get along and, and by any means necessary. And to be high-functioning in society. Well, I think most people would describe me as high-functioning. I thought I was a complete loser. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that I was a fraud. I, I believed that. I, I, I thought if anybody knew what was really going on in my head, they would... I don't know what I thought, but I just knew that I, I needed to not... I couldn't be okay with myself. But you had a career in the military. I, mean, I had a professional. No, I, I mean, I, I went to college for about ten minutes, and they saw, and they decided <laughs> that you know you, you might want to go and grow up a little bit first. Um, <laughs> academics didn't matter to me. I wanted to have. I wanted. I wanted my medication, and I wanted to be happy. And mm -hmm. I became a little bit hedonistic in that respect. I just it didn't. I didn't care. I just wanted to get high. I wanted to wanted to get out of my head. <laughs> and yes, I was high functioning. Um, I, I, I uh, reluctantly joined the military. I had a good career. I had I had remarkable experiences, and I, you know, I, I was I was blessed with you know a reasonably good brain. So I did really well in the military. I, I resisted the structure, but it wasn't so much that I couldn't do whatever I wanted. So I still managed to party and got married to a wonderful woman who is now my my first wife, my ex-wife, and the mother of my three kids, who were fantastic kids. But I was living a charade for a really and then, you know, things, life went on, the kids grew up, my drinking really started to escalate in a big, big way when we moved to, uh, to Missouri in 95. And that was the beginning of a 13-year run of uh, real dependency. I, I was a pretty good, solid alcoholic, practicing alcoholic, just trying to sneak by any way I could until uh, 2008. And uh, after a divorce and quitting jobs and losing jobs, and I got invited to go visit my brother in February uh, in 2008. And he, he had been sober. So I'm the oldest of five, I haven't mentioned this. And it turns out there's a pretty firm uh, link in my family, on my mom's side of the family, to, uh, you can see alcoholism running right through that. My mom, both, both my grandparents on mom's sides were, side were alcoholic, my mom was, and all five of us kids are, and um, I might as well, this is probably as good time as any to, to mention that two of us have gotten sober. Um, one of us has, uh, two of us are, are, are not, but they're, you know, they're, they struggle. They, they, they get along, but they, they battle it. <clears throat> and um, we have a brother who just couldn't manage his life and took his own life um, last year. Fortunately for him, I think, he 
he's not suffering anymore because I think he had a lot of, I think he had a really extreme case of what I had in terms of the lack of self-worth. But in February 2008, I went to Detroit. My brother said, come with me. We're going to hang out for the weekend. And he got sober before I did. So we did that. And he took me to an AA meeting and he took me to church. And we grew up in a church, but Jesus never came home. And what I mean by that is that dad was an atheist. I found out afterwards. We went to church because it was a social obligation as a little boy. And so uh, I, that, I mentioned the February in church in 2008 because it was the first time I ever felt the presence of God in my life. And I literally, literally felt as though he was talking to me and to say, you know, I'm here and I just want to talk. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember that. And that was a, that was a turning point. So, um, and I went to Jim's uh, recovery meeting, and they were really amazing guys, and uh, I was attracted to the selflessness of their service, and uh, a couple of months later, I threw my hands down on a cold stove and looked up, and I said, this can't be what you had in mind for me, and I put the bottle down for good. Wow. I called a friend I had met in a Bible study, and <clears throat> he said, you know, meet me at this church Friday morning at 9 o'clock. Uh, you're going to be okay. And I believed him. So that was the beginning of my recovery journey. Wow. So you didn't need to go to a treatment center. Did not. You didn't have to detox or, I mean, you didn't have to trust it. Yeah, I was the kind of drinker who, who got drunk on the first one. And what I mean by that is I would drink the whole bottle. I would, if I took, as soon as I, as soon as I took a sip, I was off to the races and I was going to end up asleep. Or passed out, depending on your definition. But I was going to get, I was going to get a high, a high somehow. And the and the the thing that really still blows me away is that that my last night of drinking, I couldn't get drunk. I drank a whole bottle of gin. I drank a whole bottle of wine. I couldn't get drunk anymore. I couldn't get out of my head. I couldn't shut down the voices in my head that told me I was such a bad person. So, and the human body is a remarkable thing. I didn't have to go into detox because there were lots of days when I didn't drink at all. Mm -hmm. I managed to keep myself in reasonably good shape. I like to bike and, and stuff. And so I, I, I'm certain that I, the first six months of my sobriety, which I don't remember well really? at all. No, no, I, it, was, it was just That's a long series of, of coming off alcohol primarily and learning how to live in my head with all those things that were so telling me all these awful things about myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so I cried a lot. I went to a lot of meetings. I was fortunate because I had this little business that I'd started just before I got sober. So it was just me. And if it was the middle of the afternoon and I just couldn't stand the inside of my own head anymore, I would literally go find a meeting somewhere in St. Greater St. Louis and just get the heck out of there. So there were days, and I, I was fortunate in that respect. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would just leave. It didn't matter. And I, I wanted it, I wanted so badly to not be that way anymore, to not feel terrible, mm -hmm. to feel like a loser, that I just said, the heck with it. I don't, I don't care if I end up in jail. I, I would much rather find some peace. I remember somebody said, I remember thinking to myself, the, the best thing I could get out of being sober would be a good night's sleep. That was it. That's so amazing. Um, did your health ever su suffer? No. no. It, I mean, not yet. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've been sober mercifully just over 12 years now. And, and, wow. That's so amazing. Uh, it really is. So, I mean, I have, I think, what are probably pretty normal 59-year-old 
creaks and complaints for my body registering regularly. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm, as, I'm just as fortunate as a man can be. I'm not as angry as I want to be, mm -hmm. but I, I can, I'm, I'm, I, there's nothing I can't do. Yeah. Except maybe eat on the left side of my mouth. My teeth started to give me trouble. It, it's just <laughs> funny. I, you know, yeah. a long life is, I think, I believe, it, a long life can be a messy thing. And it can be glorious in that respect. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the path that, speaking for myself, I'm on. So you both mentioned failed marriages mm -hmm. and struggling with alcohol. And then you two found each other. So share a little bit about that story and how I know you both could have never imagined this. Yes. Well, you heard our upbringing were quite different, me in Georgia and he in New England, and me in a, it's not even bad, it was a horrible family life, and Bill not. So under normal circumstances, I think it would be a long shot for us to be together. I don't talk a lot about my addiction story so much because there's so much, um, I, I focus more on my recovery piece, sure. and that's really was the hook that brought us together and how we stay together. We can get into the fact that we both work in recovery, but we were at a leadership weekend. We were both participating in a nine-month leadership program. Um, he in St. Louis and me here in not, Coming. Not recovery related. Not recovery related. And it was a fluke. I was not supposed to be in Chicago for that weekend. I was supposed to be in Houston the weekend before, but I was scuba diving. So I ended up in Chicago by myself on the weekend that he was scheduled to be in, with his cohort. And um, I saw him, Bill's a very sharp dresser. He told you, you know, he had a little business. He's actually a stylist and he designed men's clothing. So he was always dressed. So I noticed it from across the room, <laughs> right? I was like, wow, that guy is really well dressed. And then we ended up in a small group together. And we were sharing, what, our most embarrassing, most embarrassing story, moment. something mm -hmm. like that. And his, uh, I won't tell his story, but it... it brought a cop to an AA meeting early in sobriety. Yeah, so, there. That's, With his lights. Uh, he came in behind me. That's awesome. So, what I, I heard recovery, right? I quit in 2013, so this is year seven for me. And we met in 2017? Yeah. That's correct. September 2017. So anyway, at the end of the group, I walked up to Bill, because it's really unusual in that setting, especially when we're, it's a high-level training for people to talk about being in recovery. So I walked up to Bill and said, wow, I'm so, I'm so glad you mentioned your recovery. I'm in recovery, too. And Bill being Bill, he's very quick. He said, hey, you want to go get a drink? <laughs> and so that was really funny, right? And I, it was so in the moment, I couldn't know, just I couldn't get to a no. I was like... Okay, so we went I out. Like to tell you Bill. That was planned. It was totally spontaneous. That was somebody else's work. Was it? I, I didn't. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure I was not being intending to be goofy. It just came out that way. Well, uh, it worked. Yeah. Uh, we went out for a club soda, and long. It wasn't really a long story. The last day of the training, he texted and said he was saving me a seat. So I went and sat next to him. It was very clear that I was just in a place in my life and in my recovery because of all the relational disaster 
um, that I had been through. And it wasn't all disaster, but... But that yeah. was the focal point of our first day. Yeah, it was like... Lie on, it doesn't work for me. I'm just not available. I'm like, We're just having a soda. Girl. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not dating. I'm not available. You seem like a nice person. <laughs> you were but, saying that, Kat. Yeah. Like the whole time we were having this drink. She in the bar. You could tell. Oh, yeah. She um, wanted me bad. <laughs> <laughs> it was just rejection after rejection, and he wasn't even really making advancements. <laughs> me and I said uh, can I borrow a pen very <laughs> slick slick bill he pulls out a red pen I don't know how spontaneous that was that but was totally yeah he said well it's getting late in this conference and I and, and I'm she's a special person I mean I'm, I'm becoming I want to know her, I don't want to know more about it's desperate and I'm getting ready to jump in a car for five hours and drive back to St. Louis from Chicago. And she's going to get on a plane the next day. And I'm like, I, I, I want to talk to her some more. That's all. Yep. So I got I to gotta craft something. And I haven't got much to work with. So. Well, he gave me the red there. pen. And he said, I'm going to let you use this. But you have to promise to return it in person. And that's like, yes. Yeah. And well, so I did mention how special it was. Special. <laughs> Uh, yeah. The pen was very important to me. And actually our first Christmas <laughs> together, um, the, the ink had gone dry and that pen, he bought me a box of red pens in my stocking. So we, oh, we have oh, this oh. connection around recovery and red pens. I don't know. But we've been together that. ever since. Um, and the next year, um, she doesn't have any jewelry as well. Long, right so now. long distance relationship. Yes, for, for the first almost year, um, we saw each other occasionally. So it was long distance. It gave us an opportunity to get to know each other in a in a way that I had not experienced before at a distance. Mm -hmm. And we became friends before we, we ever became kissed. friends. Yeah, yeah. That was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was months before we even had a, a kiss. So, yeah, uh, about a year later, I had surgery, and Bill picked up his life and moved it here, which. Mm is a whole nother story in itself, all the things that... And here is Metro Atlanta. Here is Metro Atlanta from St. Louis, and um, the rust is yet to be seen. But, so we've been together a few years. We got married um, the following year. No, 2018. Yeah, a couple months after my surgery uh, in 2018, we got married. So it's been almost two years. Yeah. Yeah. Still still newlyweds. Still newlyweds, yes. Oh gosh, yes. We're still trying to navigate. We had a very tumultuous first 18 months. Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot, a lot of life changes. Mm -hmm. A lot of death, a lot of changes, a lot of, you know, we, I had I moved, I had been sober and living by myself in a house by myself in Missouri for 10 years. And uh, yeah. now I'm living in a house with three teenage kids and Not their easy. mom is fully incapacitated for the first month that I lived there. Oh, yeah. So it's tough for them too. Yeah. And y'all, um, y'all made it. We've made it. And I really credit our recovery for yeah. that. I mean, we've grown as a couple through that where uh, it might have pulled some apart. I think mm -hmm. we've grown in that because of our recovery. So 100%. Uh, we're both, yeah, from families in recovery, maybe from various things, but that has made the difference definitely That's so cool so before we kind of talk about the connection which is mm -hmm. where we are today Catherine you were very instrumental in making this place happen so if you can kind of share what your vision was to to bring an RCO 
to Forsyth County? Sure. Um, I told you I went to treatment in 2013, and when I left, because I've done multiple pathways to recovery, and what we mean by multiple pathways is that you know, there's 12-step, there's faith-based, there's cognitive-based, so there's not just one way mm -hmm. for people to get better. Um, Bill's pathway was 12-step AA, as he told you, and mine was not. Um, in 2001, in September, right after the 9-11, the right after 9-11 happened, um, I went to my first AA meeting. I was really trying to save my marriage mm -hmm. um, and keep my, I had small children at the time. Um, and so for almost five years, I, I worked the program, I sponsored other women, and then I changed communities. We moved here to Cumming in another relationship. I had divorced and so moved here to Cumming. And there, there wasn't a community that I could find at that time that wasn't a 12-step community and that I had not been really successful um, finding a connection in coming to the AA community. Not that there was anything wrong, but I was isolated with small children at home. Um, my husband was traveling, so I was isolated within my home and I didn't know anyone. Mm -hmm. So uh, for, all, for full accountability, I just didn't connect, you know, right. and so that it's really on, on me mm -hmm. in my recovery. I stopped working a program, as we would say. And so when I left treatment in 2013, after seven years of really hard drinking and a lot of uh, change, I went from two children to seven children and more marital problems related to my addiction. Um, I was like, we need a community here, you know, there, it was a missing. So uh, through a series of events, I went back to school. I'm, I'm a counselor um, since 2002, that's been my career. And um, I went back to specialize in substance use disorders. And I got a job here in Forsyth County at the accountability courts, which Fun. I cherish the time I spent there. But what I learned through that experience was that I wanted to connect with people not as a clinician, but as a peer in recovery. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to, to leave that uh, job, kind of come out as a peer in recovery. And um, I had heard about, I had actually seen a film called The Anonymous People, where, where I realized that there was this big recovery advocacy movement happening across the country. And I located um, a big RC, or RCO here in Atlanta, which is the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, and Navigate Recovery. There was a, a small network at that time of seven or eight of us. And if and you can just explain what, you know, what does RCO stand for sure. and what is an RCO? Um, RCO stands for a Recovery Community Organization, and it's just that it's a very uh, grassroots, like a recovery. It, it's actually a community where people come together from all different pathways to recovery to maintain because what we know is that um, if you when you leave treatment that was just the for me that was like step zero which is stop doing what I'm doing right but then recovery lasts the rest of our lives sure. so what I had learned from my experience is that you know isolation did not work for me I did not want to go backwards so an RCO is a place where people in recovery all from early recovery to decades mm -hmm. of recovery come together, support one another from a peer 
to peer perspective, um, doing social things. I mean, there's different types of RCO specific to the community, mm -hmm. but here in Forsyth County, um, that started in 2016. We incorporated the Recovery Community Foundation of Forsyth, and it was a whole. It was a totally new way of looking at recovery because it wasn't. You know, it didn't happen in a 12-step um, clubhouse mm -hmm. or in a church. We actually had different meetings. We had an all-recovery meeting at the Kiwanis building. We had our moms in recovery at one of the treatment centers. And we had a yoga studio teach a yoga class for people. So it was, in the, in the very beginning, it was a movement that was spread out. Mm -hmm. And it uh, wasn't until we, in 2018, right? Yeah, 2018, that we got funded and we got a physical space. And that's when things really started to take off, once everything was consolidated in one space. Mm -hmm. But RCOs are grassroots um, for people in recovery, by people in recovery. And it's happening, we started out with seven or eight that I knew of in the state, and now there's more than 30. So it's really taken on, we're a constituency of consequence now um, politically. What does that mean? That means that people, you know, when someone has a health condition like cancer or diabetes or heart disease, there's advocacy that happens, mm -hmm. right, for money for research. And so people who survive those things, like breast cancer, HIV, AIDS, they have their own advocacy movements where they get out and, and speak up and demand services and treatment. Sure. And that was not happening in the world of recovery mm -hmm. because of a lot of things, right. but mostly because of the stigma and it's a shame-based illness, uh -huh. right? So uh, when mm -hmm. I say we're a constituency of consequence, people in recovery are, are, are stepping out of the shadows, publicly sharing our stories like this mm -hmm. to let people know that recovery is really about hope yes. and that just like any health condition, we deserve we have a right to treatment, we have a right to services, and that's not going to happen if we don't demand it. Yes. So a big part of RCO, the whole recovery advocacy mm -hmm. movement, is people coming out of the shadows and being proud, facing that, you know, the stigma, mm -hmm. addressing that. You know, I'm, I have two master's degrees, and I own a home, and I vote, and, um, and I'm a person in recovery. Right. So we're not just those people who live in the shadows. Right. So. And sharing those stories of advocacy and awareness, you know, I think it's just so important um, what you guys do as an RCO and helping people truly understand what addiction and recovery is all about. You put, you put a face with it and a story and, um, you know, it is, it is so prevalent. And... Um, you know, we're, we're better when we address it together as a community because on the opposite end of the spectrum, I mean, we're, we have been in a pandemic of opioid overdose deaths for a number of years. I mean, we lose like 70,000 people a year to that. Plus, no telling how many others as a result of suicide and depression. So the disease we're talking about is so very serious. And the solution that an RCO presents, it's so cost-effective, it's so brilliant. You know, the saying, the, the opposite of addiction is... Connection. 
Right. Yes. So it's, it's having a physical space where people who are united in recovery can continue to, to work on themselves, to go to meetings, to, to go to sober social activities, to have fun, to volunteer, to be out in the community, to be united, to wear... Catherine, tell, tell what the shirt says here, which is... Uh, the shirt says here, because I got better. That's kind of... Uh, it came out of my story, mm -hmm. and Rena, you're a huge... You know our language because you're a huge ally for people in recovery. So, but that's really why I, and I think a lot of our peers do what we do is because we got better and we want to share the hope that it is possible. Now it's not easy, but it's possible to get better. And my life in recovery was better, way better than even before, you know, I started using. I've had to kind of chip away um, because quitting for me was just the first step. Then I dealt with mental, my mental health challenges, which was the reason that I started. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a lot of trauma. And the um, two often go together. They right. Very often. Uh, the majority of the time, there's an underlying condition, mm -hmm. whether it, it is unresolved trauma or some like depression, anxiety, some other mental health challenge. And going back to the opioid crisis, it wasn't until... Uh, large numbers of, sadly, a lot of young people died and are still dying. Sure. But what happened in a wave behind that um, is as it hit wealthier communities, then parents started speaking out. There became mm -hmm. that movement where people stepped out and said, we don't want to lose another child, and then the sure. money started coming. Right. And so from that came places like The Connection. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't going to happen until we started stepping out of the shadows and speaking the truth, which is that we do get better yes. and we deserve to be heard. So, Exactly. Yeah. So it's fun to watch the evolution of kind of what's happened here. Um, this place was really your vision. You got it started. You got it up out of the ground, doing great. And then you tossed it to Mr. Whitney, who is now the director here at The Connection. And doing a fantastic job, I might add. Yes. We have so a lot of work to do. Did you ever envision yourself being the director of a nonprofit? No, <laughs> I did not. Bill had a very successful career uh, in men's clothing, and so just for me to see that evolution into who he is today uh, has been incredible. Yeah. Really incredible. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on here and your vision for the future for, for not only this RCO, but recovery in the state and maybe even the country, because I think what's happening here is really a model for the country. I couldn't agree with you more. I really couldn't. Um, you know, we're some really, really, really important elements to the success of the recovery organization model that Catherine picked up on very obviously right away and in so doing she developed the mission and vision for the, the connection now in that in that process and um, our mission is to empower recovery in our community we do that by seeing people not as much where they are now we'll meet them there but when we meet them we see them for what they can be because mm -hmm. we have in and, and particularly speaking for myself I have witnessed 
in the years that I've been sober. Story after story after story after story of people who show up broken and destitute and just in horrendous circumstances, um, full of shame, full of self-doubt, full of fear. Despair. Yeah, fear. Um, and and they and and the amazing thing about the work here at the connection I've been able to witness and and people bloom, literally bloom, uh, into lives that I think probably surprise most of them. Certainly surprises me. What we're capable of, what 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 can what is available to us when we suddenly realize that we can choose powerfully for ourselves to be empowered, to let others in, to help us, to understand that this shame only lives in our minds mm -hmm. and that it's, re it's not really real, um, it's just a feeling. We get in our own heads and uh, somebody once referred to, to, to my, the inside of my head as, as enemy territory and I understand <laughs> what that means now. Um, we come out of that and people in recovery are just exactly like everybody else. Sure. There are uh, there are mental health challenges for a lot of folks that need to be dealt with, mm -hmm. but the truth is that we are capable of exceptional things. Mm -hmm. And what's beautiful about recovery is that we we reach a point we reach a point in in our sober time where we start to recognize that we have the power to do almost anything that we choose to do. And we have to do that by, we do that by starting to own what we, where we've been and acknowledging that there were some things that, that happened in my life that I'm not proud of, but I'm not shamed by them any longer. Yes. We let go. Mm -hmm. We turn our lives over mm -hmm. to higher power or to just the facts of, of what's been. And the fact is that when that happens, it, it, it occurs to almost all of us that there is a victory in that. We have overcome something extraordinary. And of course now, the vision that Kat developed uh, as part of this is really where, where society at large can, can, can benefit. And that is, is, is this destigmatization, you know? By, by telling our stories out loud, not just to other people in recovery, yes. but to other people in the world, because mm -hmm. all of a sudden we're, we're dealers of hope. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of it, and it's in all of us. And that, for me, is what becomes the opposite of the fear that drives most of the stigma associated with people in recovery. Mm -hmm. It's really a fear of, of understanding. They just don't know what it's like. It turns out these people that used to be alcoholics or used to be, uh, you know, that have suffered from substance use disorders, are just people who struggled through difficulties and overcome them and then they show up in their lives with hope and with, with determination and they show up with purpose. And that was what happened to me. And I found, I found a purpose in the work that we do here. But make no mistake, we are a community who has learned how to be a stronger community and it's a model for communities at large throughout the country, throughout the world. And I think for, um, just for human beings in general, what I find in my work as a clinician, and now I'm, I'm doing some things kind of spread out into the corporate world, which is a new arena for me. Um, people in recovery, like, get it. 
And, and not that I wish that everyone had an addiction or had to recover from something, but I really wish that all human beings had the level of self-awareness that we have to keep. Like it's a daily thing for right. me. And at the end of yes. the day to ask ourselves, if we're working a recovery program, um, did I harm anyone today? Is there anything I need to go back today and clean up? Is there anyone I need to apologize to? Is there anything I need to set right? We value time with our families because that was missing well, the during, our during our addiction. So it's, people in recovery really get it. I wish everyone were taught the recovery skills that we're forced to learn. You know? So that's, I, I'm not in recovery, I'm an ally. But I love my people in recovery for those very reasons. You know, it's like the level of transparency and vulnerability and just the, the willingness to continue to work on yourselves. I mean, that's, that's a model for all of us, you know, yeah. because we, we all have work to do. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a level of authenticity yes. and vulnerability in the recovery community that is missing in a lot of other communities, right. you know, and like so... You kind of do the dance around, I'm like, I don't have time for that. You yeah. know, let's get real. It, yeah, we're, we're real, real, and it's raw, yeah. and um, people in recovery, are, they may not be openly in recovery, but a lot of them, you know, at, in the Senate, and running the country, and running businesses, and... And I think I'm hearing more and more celebrities coming out. Oh, yeah, I'm in recovery. You know, it's not like a big deal. It is just part of the conversation. Like Brene Brown. She is a person in long-term recovery. Her platform is not built around that, but it's built around vulnerability. Yeah. Right? Vulnerability and shame. Exactly. That's where her work started. So, so um, I'm proud to be in recovery. You know, I, I, I can't regret what happened to me because now I have these tools and these mm -hmm. skills and I'm able to make an impact in the world. Um, of course, I don't wish it on other people, yeah. but it has been a blessing in my life, recovery has. Mm -hmm. um, Let's talk about how your respective families have, have healed as a result of your recovery. And Catherine, you especially, because you have such a beautiful, wonderfully blended family of biological children and adopted kids and we can just um, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I have um, a brother who um, was also a lifetime drug and alcohol user uh, for a lot of the same reasons that I was, who's now in recovery. And his name um, is? His name is Stephen. He goes by Roscoe. Some people hearing this may know Roscoe. He shares his story all around the state. He works in uh, residential treatment for men. Mm -hmm. Since he went into treatment, he stayed there and is now running or a co-manager, something like that. Um, I have a sister. I won't share her name, uh, but she's also in long-term recovery for several years. So we're closer now. You know, our addiction really broke us apart. And there wasn't a lot of communication for many years, uh, but we're back together. Um, our children are now um, growing up together. Uh, my children, uh, I did a lot of harm. You to have me. how many kids? Total? I have seven children. 
My youngest is 13. That's an amazing number right there. So they're 13, 14, and 15. They don't remember my addiction so much. Mm -hmm. uh, but my older daughters who are 21, 22, 24, and 25, it was very difficult on them. I think um, my two oldest daughters are adopted. So when their father and I divorced, that was a re-traumatization for them. And of course, my two biological daughters, who were now 23 and 22, lived through uh, their teenage years where I just wasn't present. Mm -hmm. So from that, um, I have, it's just been incredible for me. They were very supportive of me going to treatment. I have my younger children who come here and volunteer at The Connection. Uh, so this is, a, this is a family program, mm -hmm. and it took some time. I have a daughter, my 21-year-old daughter, I'm very proud of. She works with young people with disabilities. One of my other older daughters is um, a counselor. She just finished graduate school. So they're going into helping fields, but we're able to have hard conversations and I think maybe a lot of families aren't there yet because of what we've been through together because we know that if we're not communicating and we're not connecting, we're at risk, you know, and they're yeah. at risk. So, um, some of my children drink, um, some of them never have. It, it kind of runs, you know, the spectrum. But none of them so far have experienced addiction. Um, and if they do run into problems, they know they can come to me. There's no judgment. I cannot judge based on the things that have happened to me. So it's really about those recovery skills where we sit down and we talk things out and have some really difficult conversations. I think they've learned a lot about relationship through watching mine fail, but at the end, yeah, they're, they're very um, gracious and forgiving. Um, I think that my primary goal in my recovery is to continue to be a model for them, period, yeah, and to be available. Um, I put them, there was a time when I was working earlier in recovery, then I realized that, well, I need to back off because I'm not present for my family. Mm -hmm. So I try and put that first in my recovery. And that is why recovery matters so much. Because one person gets better, that family gets better, those communities get stronger. That's what it's all about. That really it is what really, it's all about. It really, really matters that we pay attention to this. We were at a ceremony last night, a completion ceremony for uh, drug court. And the primary theme for me, there were four people who were completing the program. All of them had their families with them. And every person who got up to speak said, thank you for giving me my dad back. Thank you for giving me my mom back. Thank you for giving me my child back. Yes. It was so moving. You know, a lot of those children will never know their parent has an addiction and will never have to live that. So the impact is so far reaching. To hear kids tearfully, tearfully, thanking the judge for the program and expressing with all of their hearts how proud they are of their parents is something you really have to see. It really is. You know, most the, the ripple effect of sobriety is extraordinary. Yes. And you know, most of us think of a, you know, the ripple effect, in my mind anyway, I'm a visual guy. I throw a pebble in the water and you see the ripples emanate from where the, where the stone meets the water. Well, imagine you take hundreds of thousands of pebbles and throw them all in the water. It's just, it's yes. rippling out all over society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. By getting substance use disorders, 
alcoholism, addictions, out of the closet and into the mainstream because almost everybody in America has been somehow touched by substance use disorder in some form or fashion, employers, family members, friends, whatever it is. Right. And this ripple affects everybody, right. which is why this destigmatization vision is so important because it, it affects our entire country. It infects, it infects our entire world. And if we can, and if we can just get society at large to consider the possibility of finding similarities between people before we start poking at each other's differences, yes. there's real hope in humanity for that. And that's what's so that's what's so compelling for, about the long-term possibility of recovery. Everybody's recovering from something. Yes. We just don't always acknowledge it. Yes. I want to touch on. Um, the, there's a, the RCO is actually called the Recovery Community Foundation of Forsyth. And the connection was funded in 2018 as um, kind of an offshoot of that. So that's the fiscal agent. There's a, there's a bigger vision for RCFF that's unfolding. Um, the connection was kind of our first foothold, mm -hmm. but Bill is, Bill and I together, I guess, are looking at the possibility of creating um, businesses run by people in recovery. Yes. And creating housing, safe mm -hmm. housing for people in recovery. Mm -hmm. So we want a wider scope. Uh, but the connection definitely is, is the, where we're starting. And Home I base. And has a bigger vision for that. Home base. Well, one last question for you both. So the word relevate means to uplift or restore to good spirit. Mm -hmm. to uplift or restore to good spirits. In closing, what thoughts do you have for my listeners as it relates to recovery and that very message? I think I didn't realize that that's what relevate meant. Yeah. Um, uplifting with regard to recovery begins with a quick inventory back in your life to find the things that you still carry around. And we all do it. Our experiences drive us. They mold our fears and all this other stuff. And I think an important part of, of a successful uplifting for people, for communities, for any, any place, is to acknowledge that the past isn't today. It's just something we learn from. Mm -hmm. And that there's nothing wrong in this time and space where we stand right this moment. Right. But there is extraordinary possibility available to us mm -hmm. if we let go of what was, what was and start to join in community together to build what's possible. So for me, what recovery and Relevate, where they're linked, is, is in the notion that together, there is possibility in places where there once wasn't even hope. Yes. And that's, that's the essence of any, of any well-lived life, in my opinion. Your purpose doesn't have to be grand. We sometimes trample on the gifts that, that we all have, that the founding fathers of our country all, all pointed out. We are, in, we are imbued with inalienable rights, and happiness is probably the biggest one. Yes. And that the only thing that keeps us from being happy is ourselves. We get to choose, there you and have we it. choose what's possible, and then we go get it, and then we really go get it. Yeah. And that's where, that's some of the, that's the that's choice. Where it gets then we get, then we grab, then we link arms. And then we walk together, and right. we march, and we don't quit. Yes. We keep going, because we know this is possible. Yes. We know this is right. 
Yeah, I, I want to. You spoke about our um, founding fathers and inalienable rights, and right now, uh, I really have to speak into recovery um, in terms of some of the racism, not some of the racism, the racism in our country, and that's a whole different recovery process. So, relevate for me means to to, as Bill said earlier, not to see people where we are right now. We really have to lift people up by seeing them bigger than they are yes. right now. <laughs> really looking at people and being with people as bigger. Yes. Like when when we empower people, we, we you know, we call them up to something greater than they are now. And I think if, if we practice those things, a lot of the divisiveness and the hurt and the anger and the killings and all of the things that we're experiencing on top of the pandemic we can begin to address. So that's where, you know, looking beyond recovery to addiction, I, my heart just feels like I have to speak on um, recovering as a nation yes. from the other things mm -hmm. that are underneath that we right. have not had the authenticity or the vulnerability to address. And the recovery community, if, you know, we could link arms, you know, in other arenas outside of the addiction uh, community, you know, the addiction recovery piece, and start having those conversations. So that's a goal of mine within my own family, um, is to start having those really hard conversations that make us uncomfortable, but to see us as a country bigger, we're bigger than we're being. Right. For sure. So. Right. And it's one person at a time. Yeah. That's how, how we do it. It's linking arms with one person and saying, here, I, I got you, you know, let's, we're going to do this together. together. I got better, you can get better. Yes. That's how it, how it works. That's God's economy. It's one person at a time. I think so many times we get overwhelmed by the bigger picture because if you look at how many people are struggling right now, it's in, in, in not just with addiction, but all kinds of things. It's overwhelming, but, you know, be there for each other. And then we can get better. You know, exactly. Things may seem really horrible right now in, in a lot of ways, but I still have hope. You know, oh, I think there's a deconstruction you. and we're going to come out bigger. Right. So I'm so happy that you asked us to be here. Thank oh you. Oh my gosh. Well, I just, I love you both. I respect you both so much. Love, love, love the work you're doing in this space. And I think it is just, um, just going to keep getting better and bigger and better and y'all keep preaching and sharing sharing the good news that you do get better. Thank you so much and thanks for being a part of that with us. Oh, sure. Yeah. My pleasure. Yep. Bye y'all. Four more years. <laughs> Addiction can be overcome and people do get better. Bill and Catherine are two beautiful and powerful examples of that truth. The road to recovery and staying in recovery is not easy. It takes a lot of intention and work and a community of people to help make it happen. That's why this whole idea of addiction recovery support centers is so important and is a very cost-effective and viable solution for communities desperate for some type of solution for people who are struggling with addiction and seeking recovery. It's been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but connection. People isolate when they are struggling. This is a warning sign that we should all be aware of. I 
encourage you to lean into those families who have been impacted by addiction in any way. There's so much we can do to support and love on families and people who are struggling. To learn more about The Connection, check out their website, theconnectionforsythe.org. Thank you for listening and caring about these topics, like addiction and recovery, that don't often get the attention they deserve. We have been in a pandemic caused by addiction and resulting overdose deaths for far too long. Someone I know and loved lost his battle in life this week, leaving family and friends heartbroken. I'm not okay with that and will continue to preach, educate, and share on this important topic. But no, people do get better. Bill and Catherine are two powerful examples of that. If you are a loved one, you know are struggling, please get help. A better life you never could have imagined awaits. I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.